This morning we're looking at, as, we, as he's talking about idolatry, and we've talked about this morning, we sang about how we're going to turn away from idols. This morning we're going to be confronted in Scripture with how easy it is for us to take our idols, as, as I think it's Ezekiel who says, and bring it into our hearts, as we see the struggle with the disciples in their uh, training under Jesus' ministry. When I was in high school, came to senior year, and something that's typical that happens in senior years is they went around for the yearbook to determine senior superlatives. And so all of the different superlatives were, were running around, and the, the, my classmates were voting, and I was voted the male who was most likely to succeed. And so it's still there in my senior yearbook, and I, I wonder now if, if my friends then could, have, could see me now exactly what they would think if they would go back and maybe reassess what it was that they had voted for me. And I don't know what their standards were. I was our student body president, but also because of my role in our theater department, I was one of the anchors for our news station uh, in the morning where we shared the announcements. And maybe it was just because of my visibility and my, my comfort in front of other people that I had developed through my high school career that they just assumed that I was going to become some politician or some uh, someone famous and, and wealthy. And the truth of the matter is that that extends not just from our, our high schools and our students, but that's really worldly standards, right? That size is somehow equated to success. We do this in our churches as well, where we assess success based on the size of the crowds that we attract. We base success on the size of our budget or our campus or our church buildings. Not just what we can see, but also what we can't see where we assess someone's success by the, maybe the reach of their influence. I can't tell you how many times that I have been in different circles and I, and I share somebody that I assume is, is pretty famous because maybe he's an author or a speaker in the church world that everybody in, in my circles knows who he is and the other person on the other side of the table or whatever goes, I've never heard of that person. And it's really easy for big fish in small ponds to think much of themselves. And though there's nothing wrong with celebrating and valuing the accomplishments of ourselves or with others, a huge problem happens when we allow what we value to become a barrier to what's of the most value. And that's what we see in our passage of Scripture this morning. We see what happens when we overvalue the wrong things, undervalue the right things. And in our text, Jesus teaches us a better way. He teaches us the way of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, bigger isn't always better. Bigger isn't always better in the kingdom of God. Look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. Mark writes, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. 
And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but, with God, not, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life, that many who are first will be last and the last first. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you again, Heavenly Father, for your patience with us, your long-suffering. As we see in this passage of Scripture, the disciples still, after all of this time, don't seem to get it. And though, Heavenly Father, you have a standard, and you're calling us to something more, Father, you are infinitely patient with us. And Jesus, you show your patience with these disciples. So I pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts and our minds and that you would show us from your word how it is that we might value the things that you value, that we might restructure our lives, that we might pursue you and follow after you with all of our hearts and our souls and our minds and our strength. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Just as a little bit of a a reminder where we are in this section in the Gospel of Mark. We're in the period that is really the heart of Mark's gospel where there has been a hard shift and a transition as, as Mark is now recounting how Jesus has set his face, as Luke says, has set his face towards Jerusalem and he is on the way to Jerusalem where he is going to suffer, where he is going to be sacrificed for your sins and my sins and for the sins of the disciples. And as, as he is on the way towards the cross into Jerusalem, he's calling his disciples to walk the same path. The path that's marked by abandoning their senses of self-preservation, their senses and desires for self-promotion, and instead to embrace this pathway of Jesus Christ that's marked by sacrifice and surrender and service. And as he's walking this path in front of them, he is training the disciples in kingdom values. And in this section, we oftentimes see the values of the kingdom in conflict with the values of the world. And so what we found last week is that the values of the kingdom were in conflict with the values of the world in regards to marriage. And this morning what we see is the kingdom's values are directly conflicting conflicting with the world's valuation regarding status and eternal security. And the first thing that we see in this passage of Scripture is that we see that the disciples being caught up with the values of the world are miscalculating what matters. Because they are consumed with how the world grants value to people, 
They are miscalculating what matters on an eternal level. We see this as we compare and contrast the two different scenarios that take place, the two different stories as pe- of people who are brought to or come to Jesus in these passages. On the one hand, we see the disciples' reaction to the children coming to the Lord versus their reaction to the approach of this young, wealthy man. And in these encounters, we see Jesus reorienting their assessment of what really matters. First, let's look at this, the children versus the rich man. First off, the children are brought to Jesus, whereas the rich man runs to him. And that might not seem significant, but it really is. As Jesus is teaching in this passage of Scripture, he goes on to talk about how we must become like children, how we must turn away from ourselves. We see in this passage of Scripture that Jesus is holding up the character of children. Imagine that small child. Maybe you have a small child or you've got a grandchild or you can remember being with that child who is completely and totally in their smallest stages dependent upon other people. And you're walking around and maybe they're holding your hands and as their finger, your fingers with their hands as they're learning to walk. Or maybe you have that child who walks up to you and they don't really know what they want, they can't communicate, but that child just comes up and in that sweet instant and moment, they just walk up to your knees and they raise their hands. They can barely communicate anything, but in that moment, they know, you know exactly what they want. They want to be picked up. They want to be held. They want to be heard. And they are completely trusting that you will meet their needs. They're completely dependent upon other people for their cares and their meeting of their needs. And they haven't yet come to rely upon their own strength, their knowledge, their abilities, their understanding in any way. But instead, they are totally trusting. But it isn't long before those same little people develop that independent streak. And it isn't long before you start hearing the word, no. Right? Or, Daddy, I can do it. Daddy, I can fix it. And we grow from that that sense of independence into independent men and women who live by our independence. And that's exactly what we see in this man. That he is confident in his own capabilities and he has this sense of urgency where he, whereby he runs to Jesus and throws himself in front of him. And though his concerns are sincere, there's this sense in this that he has this sense of self-importance to who he is. And that he's depending upon himself and he can get himself to Jesus of his own volition and of his own power on his own two feet. But Jesus calls us to be like children who've divested ourselves of our independence, and instead, like children, we have to completely rely upon the Lord for what we need. The children are brought to Jesus, indicating that they're probably small enough that someone has to carry them. But as they are brought to Jesus, we find out that they're rejected. The children are rejected, but the man seems to be welcomed. The disciples here expose and show their partiality. When these parents begin bringing children, the disciples have the audacity to rebuke them. To rebuke them and tell them to get the children out of here. Now we've noted just a few weeks ago that children at this day and age, they were not valued as we value children today. 
They brought no value to the home economically or physically. They weren't able to bring any type of support to the society. And so they were undervalued. So undervalued, in fact, that it was a common practice in the Roman world that if a mother had a child that she didn't want, there was a trash heap beside the home and she could lay her child on the trash dump to die. And anybody who came along who wanted that child was free to pick that child up and take them home. And unfortunately, many of those children were raised to be slaves, prostitutes, gladiators thrown out as cannon fodder for the entertainment of other human beings. Children were not valued. The disciples here expose that they're living by these worldly standards as they see these children as a waste of Jesus' time. They have no real needs. They're not possessed by demons or have disease that Jesus can heal. Giving them attention is going to result in potentially somebody else who actually needs Jesus missing out on the chance to benefit from him. The rich man, however, receives no types of restrictions. Now, I don't want to make much of this and, and pour into something that maybe into this that maybe isn't there. I still think that it's important for us to see that nobody steps in front of this man. As he comes running to Jesus and throws himself in front of Jesus, there's nobody that steps up in any way that attempts to try to, to provide any type of barrier to Jesus for him. And maybe it was just because he was a man. Maybe it was because he was coming running and the disciples had learned that somebody running has something significant. Because we've seen several people who've come running to Jesus because a child is sick or because their child is dying. Or maybe it's because they knew who he was. And they're deferring to him because of his prominence and his wealth in the city. And Jesus, when he sees their response to the children, Mark says he becomes indignant. It's the only time that Mark uses that word of Jesus. We've seen him get angry before, but this indignation is something infinitely more. He's not frustrated necessarily at the disciples because they just don't get it yet. He's frustrated. He's righteously angry at the injustice that they have just committed. Because it was just a few verses before this, if you'll remember, where Jesus told them, if you hinder someone from coming to me, if you squash the ministry, or you lead a stump, someone, a, a young person in their faith into a stumbling block, it's better for a stone to be wrapped around your neck and you to be thrown into the sea. And yet, what are they doing? They're putting up barriers to Jesus. And in this Jesus first time, he teaches them, hey, don't hinder those people, the ones that are casting out demons but aren't really walking with us. Don't hinder them. Don't stop them. Let them grow in their maturity. Better yet, invite them deeper in. But they still don't get it. Instead, they step up this time, and now they're keeping children away. And that evokes the righteous wrath of Jesus, and he rebukes them. And he challenges them. Jesus is later going to share with us that true disciples of Jesus are the ones who are undervalued, the ones who are rejected and persecuted just like the children were. And being rejected, being dependent, makes us all the more humble and ready to receive what Jesus has to offer. And so in this, as we compare these again, we see that the, the children are ready to receive, but this man comes ready to be rewarded. Jesus says that we have to be willing to receive the kingdom of God like a little child. 
When was the last time you had to explain to a little child why you gave them a gift? I don't know about you, but my kids, if you walk up and say, hey, can I give you a present? Their response is going to be, sure, why not? Of course. Why wouldn't you want to give me a present? I'm cute. Give me a present. But how often do you hear from adults when you want to give a gift of generosity, oh, no, I could never. Or how in the world could I ever repay you? What's this for? People show up to serve us. And our immediate response is to somehow not be in any way obligated to that person's generosity. So we're going to write them a check. Instead of allowing ourselves to be served, to receive. We see this in in guest lists. We're at that stage with boys and their birthday parties. And it is notorious. It's like going back to our wedding. Okay, who do we invite? Well, if we invite this person, then we've got to invite that person. And if we invite that person, then we've got to invite these six people. Or my kids, right? Somebody invites us to their party. Or we invite somebody to, to our party. And then they obviously, all of a sudden, they feel somehow obligated to invite our kid to their party. And it's just this constant thing where we're in this bartering system with one another, where we don't let ourselves just receive grace and love and generosity of other people. That's not how God works. God will never be in debt to you, period. There's no way to bring God into your debt or obligate him to give you anything, least of all eternal life. And yet that is what this man believes as he comes and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, I have kept all of the commandments. I have earned this thing, right? Our salvation is never dependent upon what we have earned, but only on what we've received. And to receive, we have to set aside our sense of value and worth and position ourselves just like little children with their hands out ready to be given what they could never earn in and of themselves. And in being willing to receive, as opposed to being rewarded, the children are embraced by the king that the man rejects. And so what we see is this in leading is that as we, and and as we see the disciples here miscalculating what matters, as we see this man miscalculating what matters, when we miscalculate what matters, what inevitably happens is we miss what matters. And the disciples and this rich man miss what ultimately matters. This man has spent his life in a pursuit of prosperity and prominence, and he's achieved it. All of the world's standards of success that would make this man wealthy and prominent and important in the world, he's gotten it. And this was supported in this day and age by a religious idea that says wealth and prosperity is a marker of God's love for me. Just go read the book of Job. It's the entire premise of what his friends are trying to teach him. Job, if you weren't a sinner... If you are a righteous person, none of this bad stuff would happen to you. Because God only blesses good people. And bad stuff happens to bad people. The prosperity gospel isn't something new. 
The notion that God wants to give you health and wealth and prosperity and wants you to live your best life now. None of that's new. It goes all the way back to this day and beyond when there was this assumption that someone who was rich was someone who was saved. Which is why when we get into this conversation a little bit later, when Jesus exposes the reality that it is impossible for someone who is trusting in their wealth and their own valuation of themselves to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples say, if the rich people can't get into heaven, who in the world is going to be saved? Because richness, wealth, equals righteousness. Because God blesses you with wealth because you're in his favor. You take that wealth, you give it away in almsgiving, which was one of the three pillars of Jewish religious ritualism and righteousness. By giving it away to the poor, the more that you get, you end up in this ongoing cycle of personal righteousness. Which is what this man is doing. And yet everything that's inside of him says something's not right with this. And so it has left this whisper deep down inside of his heart that grows into this nagging sense that something is not right and then grows and builds into a screaming whirlwind of panic into his mind and he comes running to Jesus and falls on his face and asks, have I missed something? Is there something more? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then begins to peel back the layers of this man. First, he challenges his presumption of what is good in the first place. Because he comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. Which Jesus responds, why do you call me good? The standard of goodness is God. Jesus isn't rejecting the man's assessment that he is good. Instead, he is re, excuse me, reorienting his assessment of what's good. His understanding of what's good is himself. The things that he's done. All that he has built for himself. And so he has this almost this over-the-top presentation of Jesus. As he sees Jesus working all of these miracles, this outward display of power, and, and he's building this name for himself. Surely, if there's anybody in the world that's got God's ear, it's this man. And we're, we're working together as equals here. So good teacher, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus pushes back and redirects his attention to God. And God is the one who defines what is good. And so that's why Jesus points him to God's standards of moral goodness, which we find in the Ten Commandments. And so Jesus tells him, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to walk according to the law. You're supposed to meet the Ten Commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. Don't defraud, which is probably an application of, of the commandment, don't covet. Don't fraud, honor your father and your mother. And the man's response is, well, I've done all of this. I've checked all those boxes. I've been doing it since my youth. Okay, all of those things I've done, I'm, I'm good there, Jesus. Not only am I rich and I'm wealthy, I'm, I'm moral too. And Jesus looks past his own, this man's sin and his blindness, and he loves him. He might have gotten indignant with the disciples for their injustice, but this man who's blinded by his own sin into thinking that he has achieved this state of morality and God favor, God's favor, Jesus sees through it all and he loves him. The man might have kept the commandments to govern his relation, that govern his relationship with other people. 
but he's violated the commandments that govern his relationship with God. He might be good in how he treats other people, but instead he has built for himself a God that he worships, and it is not the Lord. The man wants something to do, and so Jesus gives him something to do. Go and sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, leave it all behind, and come and follow me. Diane Langberg um, summarizes that this way. If, if, she, if she reads that, and she says, she hears Jesus say to him, get rid of everything that you love more than me and come and follow me. You want something to do? Get rid of everything that you love more than me and come and follow me. And that's the one thing that this man can't do. He can't break his ties with his temporary possessions because he has invested so much of himself in it. And he can't deny that because to do that would be to deny himself. And that's exactly what Jesus calls true disciples to do. To deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Jesus. But that still doesn't answer the question. As I was studying this, and I was wrestling, Jesus says this really interesting statement right in there. He says to this man, you lack one thing. So go and get rid of everything. How does that fill up what is lacking? And it's because the thing that he's lacking is not something. It's someone. When he gets rid of everything and chooses the path of discipleship, he chooses to follow Jesus. And his life becomes about Jesus. And that's what makes, puts him in contrast with the children who are brought to him, who simply receive him, and though Jesus gives them no wealth and no promise, Jesus freely gives them himself. As he embraces them, as he lays hands upon them, as he blesses them, he doesn't give them stuff. He doesn't make them prominent in the world. Instead, he, he brings them his blessing. And what I find in this is that what matters isn't something, and it's not some way, and it's not some action that we're to do. It is clearly someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ, the one who set the perfect example of walking the path of sacrifice and surrender and service, the one who became the last of all by dying on the cross, that he might be elevated to the first of all by the Father as God raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand. Well, he will reign for all of eternity and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the one who walked the path that we are to give our life to. But that's impossible if we are unwilling to divest ourselves of ourselves to follow him. And there's no one and there's no society where that is harder to do than in a rich society. And in a world that values stuff. And in a society that values stuff. And let's just face it. There's very few material very few societies as materialistic as America. And Americans 
Jesus says it's impossible for us to do this in and of ourselves. But what is impossible for us is completely possible and easy for God. What is impossible for the rich man to do That's the picture of the camel going through the eye of the needle. There have been attempts to manipulate and everything else, but Jesus is, is being serious here. He takes the largest animal known to them in that region of the world, the camel, and the smallest opening known to them in that region of the world, which is the eye of a needle, and says, can you get a camel through the eye of a sewing needle? And the answer is no. Obviously not. It's impossible. But what's possible, impossible for us is possible by the grace and the mercy of God. And when we turn away from ourselves and all of our best efforts and best attempts to obligate God to save us and instead simply embrace Jesus, we find blessing and eternal life. And that's what we see Jesus call us to. As we re- reorient ourselves to what really matters, we then must embrace what matters. And embracing Jesus and walking a path of discipleship means radical reorientation of our understanding of what is significant in this life and beyond. It's not the stuff that we build up. It's Jesus. It's always Jesus. And embracing Jesus does not mean that we move into pride which is what Jesus is still attempting to peel back out of his disciples. Because Peter pipes up and says, well, hey, Jesus, they, he won't leave his stuff, but we've left ours. And he goes back to that, that same argument that they were having earlier about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. And he says, we've done this. We've turned away from everything. And Jesus says that there is a reward for that. And that reward has a high cost. Because in turning away from the things of the world that we might embrace what ultimately matters, what is bigger and what is eternal, we step into a life that many people don't want to live. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus challenged people, make sure you count the cost of discipleship. Here's this man, the cost of following Jesus is killing his idol, setting it aside, and following after Jesus. And he's unwilling to do it. And the most shocking thing, as he walks away, Jesus lets him. This wealthy man, who could probably benefit the ministry of Jesus Christ, who's sincere in his desire for eternal life, chooses his material wealth and temporal wealth, and walks away from Jesus, and Jesus lets him go. And for the disciples who have left everything and followed after the Lord, Jesus says, listen, if you abandon all of those things, inevitably what we will find in the Christian life is we will find houses, and we will find brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. Because when we step out of our sinful selves and sinful lives and embrace Jesus Christ, what we find is we enter into a kingdom where there are other citizens. There is a forever family. And we can turn from our former life and we are going to find brothers and sisters in Christ who live this life with us, whose homes are open to us. But as we pursue this, it means embracing the fact that we are on a pathway that leads us to be the last of society. Because as we value the things that the Lord values, as we embrace what really matters, what we find is we are going to find ourselves at odds with the world and with what the world values. 
And that is inevitably going to mean that we're going to be rejected, we're going to be mocked, we're going to be abused, we're going to be discarded. And we see that far more clearly in certain areas of the world, such as India and other areas of the world where Christians are are beheaded, where their families are threatened. Here in America, we have to walk that same path where we're going to find ourselves increasingly at odds with the values of the world. Living lives that don't look like the rest. Lives that don't look successful. And so, as I said earlier, I wonder what my classmates would think of me now. The ones who said I was the most likely to succeed. And my my heart still wrestles with what success looks like as a pastor, as a, as a husband. There's still a, a, a prideful part of me that wants to be able to walk into a Southern Baptist Convention or a Tennessee Baptist Convention and, and there be people there who know my name. And the journey that I have to walk as I embrace what matters the most is to, to put myself aside and take up what John the Baptist calls and what Jesus calls us to embrace in this, that I must decrease that he might increase, that my life might revolve around Jesus. So my question to you today is, is how does your life need to revolve around Christ? How do you need to value what God values? Who do you need to love and embrace? Are you just checking off the boxes of religious accomplishments or Is your Christianity defined by a pathway of falling ever and always more in love with Christ? If not, then I would call you to receive Jesus today. Come to him like that child with my hands up to just be held by Christ. To be loved by him and be invested with a worth that only comes from being a child of God. And that comes when we turn away from our sin, believe on Jesus Christ as our Savior, and entrust ourselves with Him completely. How do you need to redefine your standards of success? How do you need to embrace kingdom values today? I invite you, if you would, to go before the Lord now. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And ask the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart to show you how it is that you need to love like Christ and love the things and the people that Jesus loves. Take a moment and I'll close this in just a minute.